0: Hello and welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul.
1: My name is Jen.
2: My name is Ben.
0: And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. So today we are talking with Blaise Ferrandino about theory, composition, pedagogy. It's a great conversation. Ben, uh, tell us a little bit about Blaise.
2: Yeah, sure. Blaise is professor and division chair of music theory and composition at TCU, or Texas Christian University, uh, where he has been for quite a while, since 1990. Um, he is, as you will find out, a music theorist, composer, and also double bassist. So, interested to find more about his journey and learn about him. Personally, I've had lots of great conversations with Blaze at the Texas Society of Music Theory, uh, SMT conferences, and excited to share some of his wisdom with you all.
3: And when it comes down to it, I'll always tell AP training classes this. You know, harmonic dictation, there's no gigs or rewards for properly done harmonic dictation, but a good score and a test. That's that's the... uh, that's the, the assessment, that's not the outcome. The outcome is proving you can discreetly tell linear strands and you know how they might interact to, to um, suggest or create a harmony. That, that's, that's the outcome, but in oral skills especially, I think so often we mistake the assessment for the outcome. So,
0: Blaze, we're so happy to have you on our podcast for today. And I thought we'd just start by asking you a little bit about your background, how you got into it, because not only are you a music theorist and a theory professor, but you're also a composer and you teach composition. And so you have those two areas, kind of, what happened first? Were you a composer who eventually became a theorist? Were you a theorist who eventually became a composer? Was oh. it a little <laughs> at the same time? Tell us a little bit about that.
3: Probably at the same time. You know, I, I had such a wonderful high school experience because I had a... He just uh, a wonderful teacher for three years. Uh, we, we had theory for two years. He had a theory one and two. But then um, I had a year left and he knew of my interest. So he met with me you know every other day privately for an hour. Um, and that makes so much of a difference and is, it, it really has always stayed with me as far as why I stay interested in AP because the difference that makes is, I think stupendous. So I had a great high school experience that way. I, I wrote. I, I play the bass, um, both uh, upright, and that's been that's been with me throughout my my career. And, and um, you know, as with everybody else, started rock and roll in in high school and through there. Uh, so when I went to uh, let's see, I started at Manhattan School of Music as a composition major my freshman year, and um, uh, the thing was they really were not very encouraging of playing and I wanted to do more applied kind of stuff. You know, I wanted to mix it up. So I transferred to Ithaca College and there I did a double major in music education strings and um, and composition. Um, and then I... But theory was always, you know, so first and foremost because my whole background in high school came... The, the whole lens was that way. Was uh, seeing things... More analytically and, and, and more logically, if you will, than just playing dots. And um, also, you know, the bass is a good instrument for someone who's interested in theory. Mm. Uh, I know they always say piano, but if you think about it, when you're playing the bass or the bassoon or, wh- you know, any of those lower, <laughs> the two things happen. One is often you have time and the technical room to listen to somebody else, <laughs> you're not playing all the licks all the time. Uh, you can actually look at a score and play bass parts in a lot of symphonies, yeah, right. and which, and, and and the second thing is obviously the part you're playing is, I'm biased, the most important part. So, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. if, if you're interested in theory and analysis, mm-hmm. you, that's a great place to be. Um, so, I, I, staying on, on question, they were always all part of the same whole. Playing was always part of, analyzing was always part of writing. And the same thing with my master's and my doctoral degree. I I chose my doctoral school very deliberately. I went to the Hart School of Music. Uh, and I had two other choices. But what, they, what Hart told me was, you'll be teaching two theory classes every semester for your duration here mm-hmm. from the moment I got on. And I knew that was a real love of mine. So I, I came out of graduate school having taught 10, 12 classes uh, mm-hmm. and all sorts of classes. At the end, I was teaching graduate classes uh so that that was really uh that that interest in theory and theory teaching actually was more important to me than the composition teacher (laughs) (laughs) uh who ended up being great that experience was great as well but I really wanted to have that experience in my doctoral work to teach and to
2: obviously to teach theory
3: so it's all been together the whole time I think I have to
2: say, your experience reminds me a lot of myself in certain ways because I had music ed first and then I changed over to performance, trumpet in my case, so Uh I didn't get the uh, bass lines as well as you did, but uh, (laughs) I had the melodies going pretty well, and then uh, switched over to theory for better or for worse for for Ph.D. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: I also started music ed and then was theory kind of the rest of the way. but was an alto and choir and a French horn player. So those middle lines are what I'm really good at.
3: Yeah. Oh, and they're but. so important. It's so, so neglected. <laughs>
1: yes. <laughs> but I think the, the music ed background gave, gave me, and it sounds like it gave you just a desire to be a really excellent teacher and yeah. some of the tools to be a really excellent teacher that I might not have gotten if I had gone a different route, you know, or yeah. I might've had to pursue them more actively to get them. I I think you're right.
3: Yeah. If you, you might have that interest to begin with, but it, it sensitizes you even further to the idea of deliberate teaching.
1: Right. Um, Right. So I've seen you at conferences present all sorts of interesting things about teaching oral skills, about, about kind of marrying written theory with the oral skills class, things like uh, the, the part writing matrices that you create for them or echo singing could you talk about some of those things? How did they come to you? You know, how do you? What are they? How do you use them in class?
3: Yeah, the matrix uh, came to me. Uh, I'll explain what it is in just a moment. But it came to me in the middle of an AP uh, five-day workshop, where somebody before break asked a very pointed question about how to connect um, what they're singing to what they're writing and what they're analyzing, and and how to connect the dots and. We're all always struggling for that, you know, making it real, making connections. And for whatever reason, the, the hymn we were looking at, I think we were doing a Roman numeral analysis. During the break, I just quickly went up to the board and I sketched what, what became the foundation for a matrix, which is simply steal the harmonic progression and, and don't worry about the, the specific linear strands, but the harmonic progression, and then make a stack of syllables, solfege syllables that are in each respective harmony. Do, Mi, Sol, Do for tonic, etc. Um, over time, I refined it to make like multiple octaves, and you might think that's silly, but I found that when I work with the students and I just write Do, Mi, Sol, Do, and then T, Re, Sol, T, and just write a minimum amount of uh, um, nothing happens. They just kind of stay put within <laughs> one single linear <laughs> strand, which is cool, especially for inner voice training. But when I spread it out, um, People started adventuring and occasionally skipping and then some uh, going into other niches. It it works really well because it always sounds good. It's never not mm-hmm. sounded good um, because uh, people tend to find their own comfort zone. So, you know, if you're really not confident, you could pretty much stay on dough and tea, speaking of Barbara, the whole time. <laughs> Right, You yep. could just hang on dough and tea pretty much every... And so people will do that. Or, boy, it's a lot of times you can hang on soul for a long time. Mm-hmm. But then other folks who want to try other things. Then what comes out of that is very organically, people don't tend to sing things that are awkward. Uh, they get mm-hmm. fouled up. They'll sing t and they'll go to do. They'll sing fa. They'll go to me. Sometimes they'll go to sol. They'll sense the little bit of extra energy it takes to go one way or the other. When they skip even if they can do it, they'll note that although this is quite possible, uh, in their own voices, it emphasizes the pitch, and so, if you will, hops between linear strands. Uh, it, very organically, uh, it. it my, my favorite way to describe part writing or, or harmony in general is the interaction of linear strands within harmonic pitch space. Very organically, it gets them into not only... Um, uh, individual linear strands in the sense there but the way they interact with other people <laughs> there's all sorts of things we do with it sing with it for fun but then sometimes i'll have folks uh circle the notes they're going to sing the pitches they're going to sing and then while they sing them make every effort to listen to what somebody else is doing um i always think and and uh, that one of the great scaffolding opportunities that's skipped over in teaching something like harmonic dictation or two-part dictation is you have to be able to hear a single line discreetly, all right, on its own, different types of lines, you know, more static, inner voice lines, bass lines, melody lines. You need to work on that. But then very often when I observe teachers, they immediately then throw two lines at them and say, now write them both. But there's an intermediate skill and that's the ability to take out of a complex texture two or more lines to extract orally a single line. And that's a really important step to be able to pull it out. I, I can't tell you how many times I've had, uh, I've observed classes um, and somebody just jumps right into harmonic dictation and says, OK, now you're going to hear all four parts and I want you to take two out. What? <laughs> and it's not even the difficulty of the progression or, or the difficulty of the individual strands it's the discrete skill of being able to pull a single linear strand out of a complex texture and yeah, the matrix kind of got me thinking about that, but it's, it's an opportunity to see the entire complex texture and then uh, be able to discreetly sing or hear uh, a linear strand. It works that way too, by the way. You could play the progression and, um, and maybe say, okay, Uh, here's the line that starts on me and i want you to follow it and now you have a a, uh, an aid not only you're listening it starts on me but you can see on the page basically the menu (laughs) moment to moment oh under for ghost so so that kind of thing uh jen what what led to it was what we're all trying to do to marry the four aspects of literacy together reading Mm -hmm. writing speaking hearing yeah and it's a good opportunity. It crosses across them easily.
1: It yeah. does. I love too, that there's kind of no wrong answer. They can just create a path and what they make, they make, mm-hmm. you know, there's not, there's not something that's better than another way. So it gives them a little bit of maybe freedom or yeah. a feeling of kind of like, I can do this. That, that was simple, you know? And I remember mm-hmm. when we did it, I think you had, you had us do that where we, we sang ours, but then we had to be able to tell the person next to us what they did and vice versa. And I remember thinking, you know, this is a really good <laughs> skill to build because it's not simple or straightforward.
3: And, and that, is the, that is the missing step so often. While one thing is going on, can you discreetly pull out the other, whether mm-hmm. you're singing or you're just hearing two things at once? Um, and when it comes down to it, I'll always tell AP training classes this, you know, harmonic dictation, there's no gigs or rewards for properly done harmonic dictation but a good score and a test. That's, that's the... Uh, that's the, the assessment. That's not the outcome. The outcome is proving you can discreetly tell linear strands and you know how they might interact to to um, suggest or create a harmony. And that that's, that's the outcome. But in oral skills especially, I think so often we mistake the assessment for the outcome. Mm. I think it happens yeah. in other aspects of theory, but I think especially in oral skills. I'm totally yeah. with Thank you.
2: You. Thank you. I do a lot of yeah. observations of of the teaching fellows um, at north texas and one of the aspects of the teaching observation form that i actually created is sequencing and you had talked about how when you have a specific outcome you don't just jump right from the first play to pulling out all these things you have to think about what is the best possible way of breaking this down into really manageable steps into discrete skills i love that i almost always have a lot to put in that area of the, of the feedback form because there are always yeah. ways to think about different ways of sequencing and breaking down until you can get to that final outcome, as you say. I, I like that. Thanks for sharing all that. You bet.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that's so important as as uh, a professor, a teacher, that you're thinking like the student, and you're coming to whatever topic, harmonic notation, and you're thinking, okay, what are all of the steps that have to go into, you know, getting that final, final uh, uh, four-part writing or four-part... Um, exercise finished so what are some of the perhaps uh things that we often forget you know if we've been teaching the same thing say harmonic notation you know or or whatever you know theory topic yeah. whatever augmented six or whatever you yeah. know what are some of those uh things that we often forget when we're doing it for the fifth tenth fiftieth time yeah and how boy. do we kind of keep the mind of the beginner um always at kind of the forefront
3: what a great question yeah um you know, there's a few things, uh, This just a comment on what um, uh, you and Ben were finishing with. This, the discrete steps are important steps to a final goal. But actually the discrete steps are skill sets that are perhaps more practical, more useful for the practical <laughs> musician than the end goal in a the theory class. And that's the part I never forget is, is, man, this person needs to be able to hear someone else while they're playing. This is really important. Yes musicians this is like it uh, or you need to be able to hear ahead and choose a pitch out and hear what it's going to sound like and get it so although part of it is to get to uh, a certain kind of composite outcome that is I, I think young teachers all of us forget that the, the discrete steps and the skills that evolve there are golden unto themselves which I, one thing that i like about that is you know darn well that ear training classes are incredibly uneven and you get this Well, if 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 you build it this way, then if there's like ten discrete steps to a goal and somebody gets six of them, that's still golden. Yep. They mm-hmm. might get a you know, a seventy eight in the course. Still that's a real seventy. That's a true old-fashioned C. You know, when it meant something, that <laughs> right. means for, average for a musician means better than a lot of things, you know.
0: That's now like a B plus. Right no, there. man, it's, yeah, right, <laughs> yeah, B
3: plus. So things we forget. Yeah, I was thinking about this and what I have to keep reminding myself of. Um, one motto I have is is always, always start off from ignorance, um, building it as if it's not an established fact and... Uh, you know, from the get-go. Um, I, I I often believe, I believe this firmly, it's the way of the world, but I really believe this. They, the old, uh, any baseball fans, or anybody played Little League, remember, you know, they always stick the worst player in right field. Mm-hmm. The basic reason is most people are righties, they pull the ball, Nobody, nothing gets hit to right field because no kid can get it out there. Mm-hmm. So the right fielder doesn't have to be able to do anything. There's that great Paul Stuckey song, right, about out in right field, if you've mm-hmm. ever heard it. Uh but then the true baseball fan knows a little more down the road that the right fielder actually has to have the best arm, number yep. one, and number because they have to make the throw across the mm-hmm. dime, the third. But they also have to, the slices in right field are much worse than anywhere else. It's a hard field to play. Um, really, your best player should be in fundamentals. The first grade teacher should be paid two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, by opinion. <laughs> the the, the <laughs> we we don't realize uh, so fundamentals um are are not building blocks to part writing fundamentals are discreetly important unto themselves yeah. mm-hmm. Th- and uh that's the part uh i always have to remind train uh, teacher training guys don't be rushing to get through intervals in fact intervals are far more universally useful than harm m- than Roman numerals or chord names will ever be. It applies to any and every music ever written, right? We can analyze anything intervalically, so, so it's not like a, oh, if I could just get through this, get this out of the way, get this out of the way, get this out of the way, and now I get to part writing. I love part writing, believe me. But, but that's just one thing. It's not the raison d'etre. Uh, the study of uh, consonant versus dissonant intervals, the study of, um, oh my gosh, of range the study of textural density, the study of dynamic change, all of these things we kind of sometimes relegate to add-ons.
1: Yeah, we're trying to squeeze them in along the way.
3: Yeah. Right, yeah, and they're just yeah. ad- so often just, my gosh, uh, so uh, it, very often when I'm doing something in fundamentals, I'll say, okay, your assignment is to write me 250 words and you may not mention pitch. You may not mention pitch. Uh, no way. Don't talk about pitch. Paul, that's one thing. The second thing I was thinking about in this regard uh, during the morning was, uh, you know I like the term music literacy better than theory in the early grades. Mm-hmm. Um, we forget that a large part of literacy um, is not only being able to sing or play being the o- uh, oral part of literacy, but being able to speak about music. and and also to be able to hear, I, I I've be, you know, became aware along the way that the, the, the difference between a teacher outcome and a learner outcome. And the teacher outcome is you guys could come to class and I can give a great lecture. You go, man, you nailed it. Are we wondering if the kids learned a darn thing? <laughs> no, but for us theorists, we had a great time. <laughs> it's like I always say, the, <laughs> theory texts are written for people who know it already very mm-hmm. often. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we talk to each other about it that way. So um, this notion that, uh, this leads back to the notion of there's a literacy, a music literacy that has to be built so that you understand the words I'm saying and they evoke sound and ideas in the abstract the same way music would. And that takes some thinking as a teacher. And I think they have to talk back to us and write back to us and not in simplified terms but Using the proper terms. I know it's hard to do that. The 18-year-old doesn't want to talk. Uh, they, they just, and when they do, they're not quite comfortable with the terminology yet. Uh, but I think we can't forget that a big part of literacy, both um, visual literacy, oral literacy, and oral literacy, is Words. What would you say, conservatively, 98% of our class is delivered in words? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. yep. if they're not understanding what the heck we're saying, if it's not meaning something musically beyond mm-hmm. just a, a set of instructions, that's something I always have to keep reminding myself of, is that without that part of literacy, um, I could have this brilliant lecture and it <laughs> it doesn't mean <laughs> anything, only to yeah. us, right? And that doesn't that's not why they're paying me.
2: Right.
0: I've had uh, this semester, because I'm teaching all online, I'm trying to find some more ways of getting students to interact with each other, and not only with me. Um, I've been using this app called Flipgrid on this. Yes. Um, and for my Theory 4 class, since it's all 20th and 21st century, I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to have them have a uh, every week they're going to have a piece By a 21st century composer so i went and found you know um carolyn shaw and uh jesse montgomery and all these you know living composers divers you know omar thomas and um and they have to listen to the piece and then make a response just record themselves and their response to it and then they have to respond to to i think yeah two other of their peers and what they had to say and i found uh-huh. it so interesting and i think it's going to be something i continue to do when hopefully we go back to you know face to face because it was an opportunity for them to speak about music and um, yes. and really kind of um, open them up, not just, I love it because I'm a composer, and they're like hearing this new music, and they're like, wow, this is actually really cool and not scary, (laughs) but it's giving them the opportunity to, you know, use that kind of uh, literacy to be able to explain, and maybe I'll have them write a paper. They probably will, will be less enthusiastic about that, but I found that to be so enriching this semester is hearing them, their responses to this music and giving
3: them that opportunity. Oh, I love that. That's I'm going to steal that. That's great. Yeah. Yeah,
2: I'm doing a similar thing with my Theory Ones where I said, do not be limited in genre, style. Please be open-minded. Talk about music that you really like, something that inspires you. What is it that makes this piece work? Mm-hmm. You know, what is it about it? Because um, I've talked to some of my students in the past, and there often is... Maybe one or two pieces in particular that's are really quite inspiring to their whole path to their journey. You know, whether it's yeah. a piece of oh, yeah. instrument or a piece they've heard, or they were in a certain concert, or they heard something on online or a game, and that's really inspiring. Yes, and I just give just to give them a chance to talk about it is is really really fascinating.
3: Yeah, uh, it's so important. That's that's so heartening, so encouraging to hear because um, that that is uh, we're. I think we're language teachers maybe not in my graduate classes but but I think I'm primarily a language teacher for at least two maybe the third year as well that's my primary gig and so it's kind of like the difference between teaching a language course the way most of us have had it where we had it like four semesters six semesters and really can't say much of anything <laughs> maybe can read a little bit and you could teach theory that way right and you and, 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 and on the surface, people get grades, and at the time, they, they uh, jump through the proper hoop. But they, they can't speak the language. They have no idea. Maybe occasionally they go, oh, yes, authentic cadence. I've heard of that. Or <laughs> it's like, you know, or something. You could say one thing <laughs> or hear, oh, I recognize that. They're insulting me. Or so. But, it, <laughs> yeah, it's to get a really good language teachers go way beyond that to the kind of thing you're talking about. I know you don't I know your vocabulary is limited, but you do have some and here's some I'm gonna provide for you, some vocabulary. Now talk about what you're hearing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, start getting into it. Yeah.
1: It's really good. One of the things I love about doing this podcast is that then I'm like, I'm gonna use that. I'm gonna use yeah. that tomorrow. It happens every single time. Um so could we shift gears and talk a little bit about composition because you yes. are actually mm-hmm. the first kind of composer that we've had on the podcast, Paul is also a composer, we were talking about how theory pedagogy often has kind of, you know, there's a lot there a lot of a lot. People talk about it a lot. There are presentations about it a lot. And I don't know that composition pedagogy is quite as maybe laid out. I was wondering when you teach your really young students, do you follow kind of a curriculum? Do you have a set of activities you give them? Or do you sort of let them guide the path a little bit? How do you approach that?
3: Okay. Um, we, we established a, a for our comp majors, they have a, a composition. Sound has changed. Is it still okay for you? Something just mm-hmm. changed on my end. I don't know what. Um, with our composition majors, they take two semesters in a class. And um, at first, I wasn't sure about this when I got the TCU. though those 31 years ago. Um, but, but then... We, we evolved the curriculum. The fact of the matter is it's really hard for a kid to fill even a half hour lesson when they first <laughs> come in as a composer. And right. uh, it's it's a lot better when they can hear other people and contribute their idea. And if it's a week where they didn't get anything done. If it's just private lessons, boy, it, it it's it's an uncomfortable scene, right, Paul? When you walk into mm-hmm. your teacher, you don't have you have premeasures. <laughs> you start <laughs> BSing. You start saying, "Oh well, <laughs> mm-hmm. right. <laughs> this week," and you start right. you, you try to. up they are scribbled in the hall 15 minutes before <laughs> <Right>? your lesson. <laughs> yeah, you feel so. It's it it's worked tremendously well because by the time they come now to their third semester, um, they can feel. 45, 50 minutes of an hour lesson pretty consistently. That works well. Um, they, they've uh, The way those are run is basically on, on formal templates. Let's write melodies. Let's write a phrase. Let's write a period. Let's write a binary. Let's write a song. These kind of things mm-hmm. straight through with a lot of listening as well along the way. And it, it, it has worked tremendously well. We have a great person teaching it. So when they come to me, I, I do have some normal things I do I don't force them in case it's not the right path, but it almost always is. Um, one of the first things I, I do is I have them go to po- poetry and read poetry, speak poetry, attach rhythms to the reading of the poetry. We, we parse it tremendously. We look at versification. We look at prosody. We look at um, ideas. But then I have them immediately write um, a rhythmic realization of the poem. No bar lines. Uh, one of the, I, I call it the tyranny of the bar line. One of the hardest things for me, and I think most composers to get away from when you're young is, oh, and I'll land on one, and I'll land on one. and I'll it, There's this, right? We kind of are brought up that way, as opposed to letting the idea what to be what it's going to mm-hmm. be. And consider meter the same thing it is in poetry, which is a, a backdrop, a given, something you can come into and reinforce, something you can work against, and that becomes the poem, right? The way you come in and out of the presumed meter, or the presumed dance, a march, a sarabin. Um So I want them to write the rhythm that comes with those words. And then after that's really solid, they can recite it, and we, can, we talk about it. They can intone it if they like, but I want it, I want it in time. Then I have them drop bar lines, um, and, and if it works out that it's just symmetrical all the whole, the whole time, and and uh, and the meter doesn't change, that's great. However, it turns out, but especially with the English language, I think it's very organically <laughs> dropping a beat here and there works. It's 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 kind of interesting, but they drop the bar lines. It, it frees them, and and also it 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 makes clear to them. Uh, here, here's a don't tell anybody i despise the fact that ap calls what i would call duration rhythm because rhythm mm-hmm. and meter are two separate elements that then interact right one of my favorite images is that um rhythm is to meter as pitch is to key yep mm-hmm. they exist free of each other but boy once you put them together they have an impact upon each other so for a composer, having this control of that element, of, of the durational element, or at least an awareness of it, uh, works really well. So they do that. And very often, that goes ahead and turns into a song. I Next steps, uh, if we, we uh, get it within a meter, I'll say, all right, add pitches. And then I'll have them write a counterpoint above and a counterpoint below. Um, if they need rules, fine, but usually just what sounds good to you. And then then an accompaniment if we want to build there. This is kind of like the same thing with the Matrix. Mm-hmm. Every step of it's golden and good enough in its own right, but if it ends up in a tune, which it often does, all the better. And, and it also teaches them the lesson that uh, it's wonderful when it comes to you uh, as a lightning bolt in the night, but paul <laughs> no, i wish you know maybe maybe about three measures sometimes right. but usually it, it, the 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 methodical approach to to actually mm-hmm. writing something in a deliberate considered manner so that that's one thing i love to do is is the song obviously the poem gives them form it gives them a beginning a middle an end sections very often it it lays that out for them already and they don't have to think of it it, it so uh, there's a lot of givens there. Mm-hmm. I'll do this... Another thing I'll do if if it's not a song or, or it might be it's a singer who comes in and they're very sensitized to these things already Or and, and I'm looking to get them onto something else. I, I will give them melody assignments with very specific um, recipes like it's in 3-4 and you can only write with three pitches and there's three sections mm-hmm. of each age measures long. That kind of thing. Um, that works... Just like a charm, um, hmm. or it, it, these are these are not new ideas. These are old ideas. These are these are good old-fashioned ideas from the 17th century. Give me something. <laughs> give me a fixed thing and mm-hmm. write against it. Yeah. Right? Here's your canons firm, whatever you want to call it. The poem's the given. This is the given. Mm-hmm. Write something that goes with it. Uh, it also gets to kind of the core thing that composition I- is is uh, involves creation. But composition is the putting together of things, right? So uh, the idea that you start with a blank page and you you can't have anything to go off of, that's that's fallacious. That's c- right. kind of and late so... 19th century hogwash. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, just
0: there. And then all of a sudden, boom, you know, you have a symphony. Right, yeah. And so, you know, com- composing is, you know, putting together, you know, ideas and things that they learn. So it's a great thing to include in a theory course, right? Yeah. So how do you... Uh, use composition in you know your theory one through four. Do you do composition in theory one? Do you wait till later on semesters? How do you how do you manage that?
3: Boy, that's a great question. And you know what, Paul? I don't think I've satisfied myself with that yet. Um, when I've used it, it takes an incredible amount of time out of the course, and um, and and sometimes it drives certain students to a very dark and hurt place. Uh, i I know, you know, we always talk rah rah and it's great that they're creating it. Isn't that great what the kids did? But I noticed over the years that if I had twenty kids, there are probably four or five I was leaving behind with that project. Mm-hmm. Um who you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. and so I I I had a hard time wrestling with it. I for years I did the classic Christmas tune arrangement and then I'd do this or that. Mm-hmm. Um and think about i, I in later years, um, for better or for worse, I don't do as many independent projects. I will give them things where, okay, you start this way, and I, this piece starts chordal uh, quintal, and I want you to um, use only eight notes from the aggregate, and then when it gets to the middle section, you can use the other four notes, and I want it to convert to tertian. And I'll, I'll ask them to do mm-hmm. that, that kind of thing. But, but I, I found that I just didn't want to waste the time.
0: It is a I, lot of effort, and it's mm-hmm. students have such a hard time approaching it because they're like, "Oh my gosh, I have to be like Beethoven." They're looking at, they have this romantic right. ideal of the composer. I'd
3: I'd love to do it, but but then I have to weigh it against what I lose, mm-hmm. and there's a heck of a lot I lose. So, I, I I I have found ways to sneak it in with smaller projects, but I, I keep in mind that for years I did it, and I just never found the way not to leave. of them where I know they didn't really get anything out of that. Now. I found with projects.
1: Yeah. Where like either the project is so restrictive that some of them feel like you've totally cramped their creativity, but it's restrictive enough that the ones who are scared of composition are like, I can do this because it's really straightforward and it tells me everything I have to do. Or. There's enough freedom that the students who feel a little scared to do the project are now really terrified. Yeah. And don't know where to start, you know. And so I found that, too. I actually this year for my Theory 4 class, I decided to give them they have a selection. So for they have kind of a final project in the class, but there's options. They can choose to write a short analysis paper. They can. Uh, do I like that. They can, so they have so they have paths they can take.
3: I like that. I think that's a good way. You know, one thing I do do is, as in the way of composition, is is arrangement kind of things. These are fun. uh, They—they're always a hoot. I'll take a tune and I'll—I'll—I'll get the tune, a hymn tune or something, and I'll figure out, hey, in this phrase I could get a Neapolitan and a secondary augmented sixth, and this phrase, and I'll give—I'll put them in groups and say, you write this phrase, you write this phrase, and then we do a mashup and get the kids (laughs) to come in. It's a hoot. And I've, I've made it so it can't go wrong unless they blow the part writing, which they do yes, occasionally. But still, <laughs> they like that. So it's back mm-hmm. to this. Um, they are composing, but it's not a blank sheet of paper. Yeah,
2: mm-hmm. yeah and well, I, I had I, a question for the composers as well. I found some of the same things that y'all are saying to be true. What I decided to do last year was do a very, very short composition. Kay. And what I gave them was actually a topic like a humanities topic, like for example, nostalgia um, or a broken relationship. Um, And I think I had three different topics and then I just let them write um, in my theory too. And they seemed to really, really Mm -hmm. like that. And then afterward I would discuss a song that I thought kind of correlated to nostalgia for me. And I just talked about that as kind of a, like, reflection piece but uh what, what are your thoughts on that like the little short uh compositional pieces yeah sure um
3: i guess this, this is going to sound so funny from a composer but i keep asking myself what's the outcome yeah. uh, what am i trying to accomplish with this it, it the outcome traditionally was this this is when i came up uh the outcome was well uh if you write with serialism you'll understand it better nah <laughs> 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 most serial composers don't understand it There's a, <laughs> I guess about 10 who really really got a grip um, so uh, there was this welder if the thing is you know uh, when I use it Ben um, a- and I would say let me see if I took a typical two year period I'll maybe have a couple of times in various levels where I'll do a composition project it depends on the kids I'm never going to write it in because it really depends on that group. I yeah. had a group three years ago who I did two projects with because they were built that way. They could reach the outcomes I needed and do it through that as well. But I- if the outcome is just to have a creative outlet, although that's fun, um, I think their whole life is spent on <laughs> creative outlets. So <laughs> it's I, I if it fits where I want to get them um, – then I'll, I'll, I'll do that. I, I have a class right now that came in advanced-placed. So they came in uh, um, and started the second semester of theory in the fall last year. They're very swift, they're very quick. Um, we just gotten through concentrating on scales, we're concentrating on sonority types now, Okay, and we're very heavily invested in Debussy music. Um, so with them i probably am going to do some kind of thing um where uh i kind of give a recipe of that sort start in this mode da. da, da. I, i'm v- i'm always very interested in the aggregate because the aggregate study because it's so easy like mm-hmm. you get to use th- and it's so it works and it works for david and it works for all of them you know yeah. oh look like Walez, right in, in sales he so clearly controls the aggregate and then goes into the whole tone section. He's using the other p- and then mm-hmm. he adds the other one. So if you say, okay, if you use these here, it's so it's so wonderfully childlike to say, you know, you go to the piano, this section's on the white keys, right? And this section's on the p- I mean that's cool. That's that's <laughs> yeah. That's how we, we, we got into music, was doing that kind of thing. So they're that kind of class where yeah, they will have something this semester. But I had a class last year that it just it would have been a negative. It would have just <laughs> bogged them and uh, really been time off, is what it would have been for them.
2: Yeah, you well, know, I appreciate your thoughts on that because I just was going out on a limb for a little bit, and it's always good to hear feedback from from well, the and composers and composer theorists and theorists.
3: <laughs> and, it, and but Ben, I think you you must sense the kids in front of you. This is the right thing for them because it's. It, see, my thought is that. Doing a composition project in a theory class is primarily a tool, not an outcome. It's a means to an end. So just as with any of us, we don't take out the same tools with every class, right? We go, oh, this class, that's not the right tool. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get the other tool. Mm-hmm. So that that's how I feel about it. it with some classes, it's exactly the right tool. And with others, it's like, you know, hitting a spike with a with a pliers. You know? it's <laughs> <like> <laughs> uh,
0: well, we could talk for I think another couple hours here but we promised to be uh, you know 30 minutes or so so we're actually gonna come coming to the end but before we close we have some uh, rapid fire questions for you so each one of us um, are going to ask you a question Uh, these questions are unknown to you and perhaps even unknown (laughs) to any of us Um, and (laughs) (laughs) and so these are just you know you don't have to think about it just what comes off the top of your head you don't even have to defend it and so um, I guess I'll go first and so so my question is you having you're having to choose between um, one of these two groups either the sons of Bach or the daughters of Boulanger.
3: Sons of Bach.
0: So CPE JC yeah, yeah, all of yeah. them.
3: <laughs> or the daughters of Nadia Boulanger. Or
0: daughters of Boulanger, so Nadia and her sister Lily.
3: Okay, and, and just the daughters. Just not the, daughters. the sons as well.
0: I don't know if he had sons actually.
3: Oh, you mean the actual? Yeah. Oh, I thought you were uh, okay, I thought you were talking about like the people who studied with them. Oh. Oh, well Oh, okay. <laughs> Let me think a second. And what do I what am I going to do with them? Have You're dinner picking, or
0: Or picking, you know, which, you know, which music are you going to, you know, choose? If oh. you have to choose one, you know, to kind of continue on in that canon,
3: you know. Yeah, probably The Daughter's of Boulanger. Okay, yeah. Probably, oh, because I, I have no idea what to expect, so it'd be kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: All right, I'll go. Um, unless you want to say more about the Daughters of Boulanger, but if not, um, do you think we should teach major first or minor first?
3: Alternate. Give no bias to either. And every I will, t- I will answer that completely. Every year I teach part writing, I start opposite. Hmm. I refuse to believe minor is harder than major, and the kids back it up they do just as well um it it, it, so i i I don't i I don't think the bias should be instilled um uh so it's more for me to make sure i don't teach this relative to this or especially Mm -hmm. in this day and age my heavens you know the major minor system is one in a large (laughs) uh, uh palette uh, so i I do I alternate just to keep myself honest, mm. and the kids don 't know any different i start in we do a d right. minor part writing i 'll start off with just single chords or just a, a one chord and uh, you 'd be amazed so in answer to the question is do they do any better not forgetting to raise the seventh degree no <laughs> 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 no, but you know what 's nice rather than it being a when I teach minor first, rather than being a oh I don't like minor, we have to remember this. It's you don't get that. Mm. It's it's I like major because I don't have to remember that. <laughs> right. So you get a different kind of groove off of them.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah.
2: I love that. Mine is uh minor law versus minor doe. Ah, excellent.
3: It depends what your outcome is. It's all dependent on outcomes. Um, I, I uh, my personal thing. I was lucky. I. I in high school it was it was law-based minor and then when I went to Manhattan it was fixed Doe and then I got another teacher there the second semester who did numbers and I had to assist in the class then I went somewhere where it was Doe based minor then I had to graduate and then what you're gonna love this when I taught sight singing at heart I one year I taught two classes at the same time the way they did it at the time was the Kodai people were to be taught in law based minor but the non Kodai people were to be taught in Doe Base Minor. Wow. So You talk about, it really may be very bilingual, mm-hmm. trilingual. It all depends on outcomes. What are you trying to do? And also, um, what literature are you working with? Yeah. Mm-hmm. If I'm working with Bach, Law Base Minor. If I'm working with Brahms, Doe Base Minor.
0: Yeah. Right.
2: That's my answer always. Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. I love that. Well, that's great. Well,
0: thank you so much uh, for joining us. Um, just a- as we close, you know, um, for our listeners, you know, how can they, you know, reach you or where are you at? You know, if people oh. have a burning desire to ask <laughs> you more about uh, part writing matrices or things like I, that,
3: I, I'm at TCU, so um, my email address is is at tcu.edu. That's easy enough. You can attach it to the podcast, I guess. You probably will. Absolutely. And um, and then um, if you want to hear some of the music, uh, actually, I I even have some. Some videos of, of early teaching of fundamentals teaching uh, theres a there's a website it's com. surprise nobody had taken it <laughs> 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 in oh. fact I could for a while I could have gotten dot net dot uh. this dot Then somebody (laughs) grabbed one of them. I forget what it was. But you know, they'll offer it to you for another $75 or whatever. Right. All us rich
0: rich composers with all of our money to buy these domain names.
3: (laughs) Well, there's a royalty check for the year spent on that. Yeah.
0: so that's our show thank you so much for listening to note doctors the music theory and pedagogy podcast we will be back with more interviews with professors and teachers who will be dropping all sorts of theory knowledge for your education edification and enjoyment so until then bye bye.